Thanks, Debbie. That was great. I should probably tell you, too, that this sermon is being listened to under protest from my wife that my shirt isn't tucked in. That's, that's not her fault, okay? She can only deal with what she, she's got. Okay. Hey, so if you're, um, if you're new this morning um, or coming back after a while, not at church, uh, at High Point we're going through a series called The Gospel in the Bible or Gospel Through the Bible um, in which we're, we're trying to see Jesus on every page because he said he's the, that he's on every page of the Bible that the whole story is about him. And so this morning, I'm going to jump a little ahead to where I was in Genesis to um, the book of Exodus and talk about how the, re- the cross and the resurrection that we celebrate on Easter Sunday is related to and embedded in this story in the second book of the Bible called Exodus. I remember some years ago, um, I was listening to a YouTube video, and one of th- there was a guy interviewing a Nobel-winning economist, and, and the economist said to him, he said, listen, from what you know of history— is tyranny or liberty the normal state of humanity? From what you know about history, is tyranny or is liberty the normal state of humanity? Right? And the, the guest host kind of snickered because he knew that there's an obvious answer to that question. Throughout the history of the world, the normal state of human beings has been a state of tyranny or a state of slavery, not liberty. In fact, I'm, I'm not sure how familiar you are with this, but in the last 10 or 15 years, there has been a, a third abolitionist movement in the West. Um, there, was, there was one um, from about the 2nd century to the 11th century in Europe um, that dwindled slavery up until about the 14th century. Then it came raging back with colonialism. And there was another anti-slavery movement that was from about the 1700s to the late 1800s. And then it kind of died out. We thought we'd won on that one. And then um, it started coming to people's attention that actually there are, there's more people enslaved today than at any point in human history before now. And there's a third abolitionist movement that's been gaining weight, in fact. Um, and on all three of them, one of the things that's really interesting about them, in all three of them, Christians have been at the beginning vanguard of those movements. The earliest movement of anti-slavery in the Roman Empire was started by Christians, was led by Christians. There, there are records of Christians rele- releasing thousands, tens of thousands of slaves at one time. Um, in the colonial period, almost all the early European abolitionists were Christians, Methodists, or Quakers, or evangelicals of some kind. Um, and in the present one, about 10 years ago, I remember first hearing the rumblings about having to do something about the new slavery crisis from Christian missionaries and um, international justice missions. Some of those groups were some of the first on the scene for that. And now it's chic and everybody's in on it, so, which is great because it gets more press and money and all that kind of stuff. Um, but, this, but even in our day and age, slavery isn't over. It's never been over. It's still with us. In fact, um, if, you, if we look at the story of the Bible, one of the things that the Bible would teach us is that actually tyranny and slavery is the greatest malady of humanity. That God, one of God's um, clearest and most central revelations of his character is that he is a conquering king. But that always begs the question, what kind, right? Is he a liberator or is he a new tyrant? And the claim of Scripture, specifically in the book of Exodus, but all the way through, is the claim that, that King Jesus, that, that, that God, Yahweh God, the King and, and God of the Bible, is a liberator. That's at the center of who he is. Um, 
you could see this in a number of things. You can see this in the Exodus that we'll talk about later on. One of the things that's really odd about the Torah, the first five books of the Bible, is that God sets up this theocratic state where God, where God is king, right? But the thing is, there, in every other theocratic state, there was always a king who was like God's appointed king. And the Jews, they had, no, they had no executive. It was the weirdest thing. It was this group of people. They had laws. They were supposed to obey those laws. There were judges set up to, you know, to settle disputes. And there was a prophet to tell people what the right thing to do was, but with no ability to enforce it. He was just the prophet. He wasn't the king. Because God apparently just expected him being king to be enough. That if people were good, they could be free if they had a law. And then later on, as things began to fall apart, the prophets would keep coming back and say, this is what God wants. He wants justice and he wants liberty. That's what he wants. He wants freedom, right? You get to the book of Isaiah, and Isaiah is talking in the, in the person of God, and he says, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me because the Lord has appointed me to bring good news to the poor. He sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and to open... And the opening of the prisons to those who are bound. And the assumption here is opening of prisons to those who are bound, those who are bound in unjustly. By the time you get to the New Testament, the New Testament carries the same message. The Apostle Paul says in Galatians 5, where he's trying to explain to people the significance of Jesus, he says, listen, it was for, for freedom that Christ set you free. He didn't set you free so you could be slaves again. He didn't set you free for something else. It was to make you free that Jesus set you free. Therefore, don't let anybody enslave you again with anything, right? And in the, the sort of culminating verse of Mark, a lot of people say all of Mark's gospel points to this one verse where Jesus finally reveals what he's there to do. He says, he says to his disciples, he says, the Son of Man, speaking about himself, he says, the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Now, normally we think of the word ransom nowadays that somebody gets kidnapped and you pay a ransom to get that person back from the kidnappers. That's not what the word meant in the ancient world. A, a ransom was the amount you paid in order to redeem someone, essentially out of the bondage of slavery, because most slavery was debt-based slavery, right? There was no bankruptcy. So if you went into enough debt, you became a slave of the person you were indebted to, which mean there, meant there was a price for your redemption, whatever your debt was. And anybody could come along and be your redeemer if they were willing to pay your ransom, right? And so Jesus said, I've come essentially to redeem to pay the ransom cost for many in the human race, right? So Jesus actually points to himself as this, this liberator, this redeemer. And one of the evidences of this, one of the biggest evidences of this in the Bible, is that um, God chose to embed what we're celebrating today, the cross and the empty tomb, in another celebration he had created more than a thousand years before called the celebration of Passover, which we're told about in the biblical book of Exodus. So if you're not, if you're not up on your, um, on your Bible stuff, let me give you a little background on the Exodus. Exodus is the second book in the Bible, and it means the going out. And there's this point where God tells this guy Moses, who's going to lead the Jewish people out of slavery, and he says, tells him what he's going to do, because he's taking their slavery and his job as liberator very seriously. And this is what he says in Exodus 6. God spoke to Moses and said to him, I have heard the groaning of the people of Israel whom the Egyptians hold as slaves, and I have remembered my covenant or my agreement. Say therefore to the people of Israel, I am the Lord, and I will bring you out from under the burden of the Egyptians, and I will deliver you from, the sla from slavery to them, and I will, there's that word again, redeem you with an outstretched arm 
and with the great act of judgment. Now, if you're not, not up on the Bible, which most people these days aren't, let me give you a quick background on the Exodus, okay? So, in the book of Genesis, there's a guy named Joseph. God uses Joseph, who is himself a slave at that point, to save the whole Egyptian people from this massive famine that was coming into their land. He interpreted a dream to know it was coming, and then he administrated their salvation. So, for the sake of the Jewish people, God saved all the Egyptians. But then there was another Pharaoh, a Pharaoh who either didn't know about Joseph or didn't care about Joseph, who came up after him. And meanwhile, the Hebrew people were in the land of Goshen, which is sort of northern Egypt, and they were multiplying really fast. Apparently, they were having lots of babies. And the Pharaoh looked out, and he saw that there were lots of Hebrews, and he realized something, because Egypt never had a very big population. He realized that if somebody came to attack Egypt, the first thing they would do is send scouts ahead to try to enlist the Jews to fight with the invading army, with the promise that they would get all of Egypt and be sort of the vice regent of whoever attacked. And he also realized he wanted to build a lot of things in Egypt, but he didn't have a lot of extra people to do it. And he realized he could kill two birds with one stone if he just enslaved these people. So what he did is he enslaved the whole Jewish population to build up major cities in the Egyptian empire and to make sure they were subjugated so that nobody could enlist them to fight against his own country. But it didn't work fast enough because what the Bible says is even the more he oppressed them, the more they multiplied. You know, what do, what, what do, what do depressed people do? <laughs> right? And so the, the Jews kept multiplying in numbers. That just made him more and more nervous. And he realized that he wasn't going to be able to accomplish what he wanted to without engaging in ethnic cleansing. So he put together a male death policy, basically, that all the male children of the Jewish people were to be killed until he could wipe out the male population. It is for a long time, and there was one child who was saved from it, a little child who's ended up being named by an Egyptian, Moses, the one that was drawn out, who was picked out. And so sometime later, God sent Moses to go to the Pharaoh and tell him that the Jews belonged to him and that Pharaoh was to let them go. He said, just go and tell him, let my people go, and I will give him all the convincing he needs. Which it turned out the Pharaoh needed a lot of convincing because in those days the Pharaoh was looked at and actually, as far as we can tell, believed about himself that he was a god. And so to have some shepherd from the middle of nowhere come and tell you to let your slave population go, that's not something you normally cave to real easily. And so there was a series of ten plagues that God unleashed on Egypt. The Nile turned to blood, frogs, gnats, flies— death of livestock, darkness, unnatural darkness, just a series of plagues. But the last plague was the plague on the firstborn son. And God said, this plague is different because most of the plagues, they happened to the Egyptians but didn't happen to the Jews. It was weird. But this plague was to be on everyone. God was going to send the destroying angel and the destroying angel was going to kill the firstborn son in every household in the whole land. Except there was a way out. If a family got together, sacrificed a lamb, made a meal, prepared to leave Egypt, and took the blood from the lamb and put it on the doorposts of their houses, God said, when the destroying angel comes to that house, he will see the blood on the doorposts and he will pass over that house. Hence the name, Passover. Anybody could be part of it. But since Moses was the Jews' prophets and the Egyptians were kind of angry at this point, um, it was the Jews that, that did it and got the, the angel passed over their houses and killed the firstborn sons of every other household in Egypt until the Pharaoh finally said, leave. And through that plague, God finally freed his people from slavery in Egypt. 
But there was one more thing that he did. He said, this, this moment, this moment where the angel of death passed over you because of the blood of the sacrificial lamb, he said, you're going to remember this forever. I want you to turn this into a lasting celebration. You're supposed to celebrate the Passover forever. And by the time Jesus came, they had celebrated it every year for more than a thousand years. Think about that. Almost the same way they had celebrated this for a thousand years. When yours and my Jewish neighbors celebrate the Passover now, they are celebrating a celebration that has been going on for something like 3,500 years. And 2,000 years ago, God took the work of Jesus on the cross and the empty tomb, and he embedded it forever, right dead in the middle of the Passover. Now, you may be thinking in relationship to that. Nick, I, I know I'm sure the people who come here normally are very riveted by this, but I'm struggling a little bit with why I should care that God took a 2,000-year-old thing and put it in the middle of a 3,500-year-old thing. This is a lot later than that. And I know that, you know, we're competing for attention with other things that are happening today. Um, And I'm thinking about that too. I'm thinking about this almost as much as I'm thinking about that. Because I love ham. And Easter is not about ham, but it's okay to have ham at Easter. Um, But there's two reasons why it's important. I want to go over it in the next just few minutes, okay? And by a few minutes, I'm—well, you'll get the picture. Um— the first is, is that sla- the sla- slavery affects you. That there is, the whole human race has been afflicted by economic and political slavery, but there is a true and greater slavery that affects all of humanity called sin. You see, normally we think of sin, if we, if, for most of us the word is a snicker word, right? Nobody even cares what the word means. But for those of us who even take the idea moderately seriously, normally we think of it, it's bad things people do. But not, see, not to God. To God, it's a form of slavery. It has a kind of tyranny. It's not just a thing. Sin is a power. And it is a power over us. And it is a tyrannical and murderous power over us. And it affects the entire human race. It affects you. And so, therefore, what God has to say about being a liberator matters for you and me. There's this place in John's Gospel where um, Jesus is talking to the Jews that actually like him. You know, and he's talking about freedom, and this is what he says to the Jews who believed in him. Jesus said, "If you hold to my teaching, you are really my disciples. Then you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free." And they answered him, "We are Abraham's descendants, meaning we're Jews, right? We're Hebrews, and have never been slaves of anyone. How can you say that we shall be set free?" And Jesus replied, "I tell you the truth: everyone who sins is a slave to sin." You see, Jesus wasn't talking about Roman slavery or Egyptian slavery, or any of the slaveries that the Hebrews had suffered under. They'd suffered under many slaveries. But he was saying this. He, and notice Jesus doesn't say, people who sin go to hell. That's not his point here, at least. He's not saying people who sin make mistakes. No, he's saying anybody who sins is a slave to sin. Do so you, you see how Jesus— What Jesus is saying about sin, in this case at least, isn't meant to be confrontational to us. It's meant to be therapeutic. He's saying, listen, the reason I've come to set you free by the truth is because there's a deceptive power to sin, and in its deception, it makes you a slave. And I've come so that you can be free. See the point? Because, you see, Moses learned the exact same thing. 
Moses, through the Passover, led the people out of Egypt. But you know what he found? He found that you could take the people out of slavery, but you couldn't take the slavery out of the people. That's what he found. He led God's people out of Egypt into this land of testing, the wilderness. And you'd think that with, with their children being murdered and with the kind of labor they were under, they would be thrilled. But it turned out they weren't really thrilled. God provided for their needs, but he didn't provide luxuriously for their needs. He just provided for their basic needs, and they started to complain and crave other things and desire the things God didn't give them and, and actually say on a number of occasions, you know what? We should just go back to Egypt. Right? There's this one point in Numbers 11 where there's an episode of it, and then there's this next episode where it says this. The rabble, and that's like basically the complainers among the people. The rabble with them began to crave other food. And again, the Israelites started wailing and said, if only we had meat to eat. We remember the fish we ate in Egypt at no cost. Also the cucumbers and melons and leeks and onions and garlic. But now we've lost our appetite. Literally, our strength is withered up. We never see anything but this manna. Right? Manna was this food that God had given them that just laid on the ground every morning. They could pick it up, but it was the same every day. And they just got tired of it. And they said, oh man, if we just have a barbecue, man, it'd be awesome. Right? Now, I'll come back to that in a little bit, but you might be, you know, you might be thinking, you know, Nick, I, I still don't understand this whole idea of how sin is slavery because, you know, there's a lot of us who think, you know, that religion is slavery, right? The idea that oh, we'd come to church all the time and, you know, obey the Bible commandments and do the spiritual discipline stuff and be in what, blah, 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 that sounds like slavery. It sounds like you're trying to flip the tables. Isn't that clever? Well, okay. I understand that. I understand that. You know, being told to do that doesn't feel like what you want to do. Okay. But think for a minute, what is, what is slavery? Right? What is it? It essentially, it's being powerless to do what you know is best for you. Right? So economic and political slavery is, there's some kind of tyranny over you that you can't do what you know is best for you. So you can't, you can't get a job, you can't learn to read, you can't get an education, you can't do whatever you know is best for you and your family because somebody's holding you back and taking the fruits of your labor for themselves. Right? But, you see, Scripture talks about a spiritual slavery, which is being powerless to do what's really good and good for us. Because remember, in Christian thinking, what's good for me, what's good for my neighbor, and what glorifies God's name are the same thing. They converge. And so, when I can't really do the good, that's a powerlessness. And I should want the good, right? If I'm a morally whole being— I should want to be able to do the good, but I find I can't. That is the slavery that is being referred to. And one of the funny things about this is that you might disagree, but humanity as a whole already agrees on this. Um, people say all the time that religions are all the same, which is, of course, really silly if you study them. But there are certain places in religions where there's some convergence. For example, if you take the most general moral commandments among the different thinking traditions of the world, there's a lot of alignment between them, right? If you, in most I, idea traditions, there's some kind of idea that people ought to be bene, beneficent to each other, right? 
They shouldn't defraud each other. Stealing is wrong. Those kinds of things. They, they crop, you look at ancient Chinese parables and you look at ancient Egyptian sayings and you look at the Hebrew scriptures and you look at Western texts and you look at the Norse myths and you look at the Anglo-Saxon tradition and you, you find a bunch of stuff that's in there that, that is pretty much agreed upon. People can figure this stuff out. But then you know what else is t- agreed upon almost ubiquitously in all cultures? We don't do those things. That's why there are religions. That's why there are governments. That's why there are organizations. That's why there is philosophy. That's why all these things exist. That's why there's science. Because everybody's trying to figure out a way to get human beings. We know what's right. We don't do it. So we come up with some kind of way to get people to do it. And that's where everybody diverges. But you see what it assumes? It assumes the slavery of sin. It assumes that as a race of beings, we do know, for the most part, what's right, and we don't, for the most part, do it. And if that is true across the board, but yet we think of ourselves as moral beings, almost everybody believes they're a good person, because we think of ourselves as moral beings. We just don't execute on it. What is that, what is that intuit for us? What should it intuit for us? That we're powerless to do the good. That is, like the phrase or not, we are slaves. The Apostle Paul um, has this passage in the book of Romans, and, and he's, he's just talking about this issue that he feels inside of him. He says, I don't understand what I do. He's thinking about his behavior and, and that he's not a good man. He says, I don't understand what I do. For what I want to do, I don't do. But what I hate, I do. For I have the desire to do what is good, but I can't carry it out. For what I do is not the good I want to do. No, the evil I do not want to do. This I keep on doing. So I find this law at work, meaning in this context, this principle at work, this is what I find about me. I want to do the good, but evil is right there with me. Right? And the argument he's making is that this is a spiritual malady. This is not a scientific malady. This is not an issue of environment and brains. And if we can work out the environment and the brain, we can fix this. Therefore, science is the answer. No, the demon is deeper than that. There's a lot of questions science can answer. Science is a wonderful, wonderful thing. But the actual slavery malady of human beings cannot be solved by that. It's a spiritual malady. And um, the thing it most ends up looking like is an addiction. Now, you might think, um, well, Nick, are you saying basically that um, all addiction is sin? No, I'm not saying that. I'm saying the opposite of that. I'm not saying that all addiction is sin. What I'm saying is, is that all sin functions like addiction. And it has deception built into it because all addicts, what's the first, what's the first step in the 12 steps, right? Admitting you have a problem, right? Denial is the first problem. That's, so what does Jesus say is the answer? Remember this from chapter 8? The truth, right? Sin always has at least four enslaving functions. The first is, is that it always has a tolerance trap, right? Like you've heard of this, right? The more you do something, the less gratification you get from it. And so you have to amp up what you do to get it back. And you'll be like, oh, I think that's like a chemical thing. Okay, wait, wait, wait. It's true. People who drink, they, their body builds up tolerance, so they have to drink more. People who take drugs, their body builds up a tolerance, and they have to take more drugs. But, but wait a second. This is true about things you don't ingest anything to be addicted to. Right? Gambling addicts, sex addicts, fighting with their spouse addicts, 
all kinds of addicts will testify to the fact that things, they don't take anything, but yet they still have to amp up the thing that they do to get as much out of it as they used to get out of it. Because it's not just a chemical process, it's an internal human psychological process that when we're addicted to sin, what we get from it gets diminished and diminished and diminished. It's exactly what you should expect, right? That sin would want you to give it your soul and give you nothing in return. And the reason for that is it becomes the hollowest out inside. The things that are supposed to bring joys and pleasures get sacrificed to the addiction. And so our ability to be made happy by these things is diminishing, and so the dose has to be amped up. Right? The second is denial blindness. I mean, think about this, right? Guys, don't you remember the fish in Egypt? It was free. It's free. And the, the, you remember the cucumbers? Right? Remember the cucumbers? Oh. Mm. Just, I mean, how mentally ill do you have to be to believe that cantaloupe is the upside of genocide? Right? But you, you get out in the desert in the hot sun enough, and you're frustrated about how much progress you're making, and you haven't learned how to be happy— living life the way you were meant to live it, and before you know it, the slavery that was killing you sounds really good again. Imagine how good it sounds when you're in it. There's always this denial blindness that goes along with it, with addiction, and that is always present in sin. And the third thing is destruction of the will. One of the things that you always see in addiction is people feeling like they don't have a choice. In the, in the Numbers 11 passage, the people said, um, our strength is all dried up, meaning I don't have any strength to fight anymore. I'm just, I just got to give in to whatever it is. Therefore, I'm not morally responsible for rebelling against God in, the, in that particular situation. And what always happens is this—you see, your and my willpower are built on— are built on spiritual and moral internal health, redemption, what we were meant to be. When those things get hollowed out, is it any wonder that we don't have any willpower? There's actually a lot—there's a lot of people that believe that willpower is merely just brain chemistry. Either you have it or you don't, you're completely at its mercy. There's a lot of research coming out right now. There's actually a great book called Willpower that demonstrates that most of the research being done is that that is false. Human beings actually do have willpower. It's like a muscle that you can strengthen. It does have certain limits, but it, we're, not, we're not nearly as far at the mercy of it as we think we are. We're much more morally and choice-driven beings than we think we are. But when we surrender to the idea, we allow ourselves to be hollowed out, we allow ourselves to be passive, we seek um, what we think will make us better, we fall into denial, and we fall into a tolerance trap, what are we going to think about our willpower? What are we going to think about whether or not we can say no? Of course we're going to believe we're at the mercy of whatever we're addicted to, right? And the last thing is if-only thinking. That is— what, if you're getting hollowed out by a tolerance trap and you're in denial, what could possibly convince you to stick with it rather than bail to something real, truly better? And that is your belief there is another level of dose that you could get that would make all the difference. It's part of the denial. It's, kind, it's like the idea of, of believing that you could build up a fire and the more you build it up, the more it will self-sustain. It's false. The more you build up a fire, the more you've got to feed it. Right? I mean, anybody who's been camping who said, you know what, I want the fire to burn all night, so I'll just make a really big fire. It doesn't really always work. It just burns everything faster and then dies just as quick, usually. Right? And so one of the things that we often do is we have this kind of, you know, if only I 
if, if, if only I could get done with school, if only I could marry so-and-so, if only I could get out of this terrible marriage, if only my kids would act like they should, if only the economy improved, if only my spouse would treat me with the respect I deserve, if only I made more money, if only whatever. The, the great thing about if only, though, is that, that it can help you because it'll tell you what your real Savior is. You can tell me all you want, you're non-religious or that you're a Christian and you like Jesus. But when it comes right down to it, whatever finishes the sentence, if only I had blank, then I would be happy and blessed. That's your Savior. You can call Jesus your Savior. That's your functional Savior. That's the thing you really are trusting in to make your life okay. It's called, in Christianity, we call that an idol. Now, the reason that's important— is because until you believe there is a true and greater slavery than the slavery of Egypt, that's sin, it will, not, it will not mean anything to you that Jesus is the true and greater liberator. It won't mean anything to you that he's the true and greater liberator, but that's what Jesus is. Jesus is the true and greater Moses who liberates the human race from the ubiquitous slavery of sin, who liberates us through faith and through the truth through the enslaving addiction of sin that will hollow us out and kill us over time. There's, there's four ways I want to tell you about this really quick. The first is that Jesus is a true and better, better interventionist. If you're stuck in an addiction, if you're enslaved to something, what do you need? You need somebody who cares about you to tell you where you are and what you're in and how stuck you are and what needs to happen. But there's, there's something special about Jesus' intervention that's true about basically no other interventionist, and that is he takes the picture of what you're becoming onto himself. So, so think about it this way. When I was in Florida, we had with terrible meth problems in, in the area of Florida I was in. I don't know if you know anything about the, the drug meth, but it's a terrible drug. 97% recidivate and um, recidivism. And— um, and it destroys the human body. It just hollows people out. They lose all their teeth. They look 50 years older. It's unbelievable what that drug does to people. And um, I've sat with families, and when their kid was going to rehab the eighth time, you know, I was just part of ministry down there. Um, But you know, the cross is a little bit like Jesus trying to talk to a meth addict by taking all of those things and pulling all of his own teeth starving himself down to nothing to say in the moment of intervention, this is what you're going to be. This is what this is doing to you. That's what the cross is. The cross is payment for your debt. But when he takes your debt, what's he doing? He's taking what you're becoming. He's taking your damnation on himself. He's paying your debt. And when he's doing that, he's also showing you what's happening to you. He's showing us what's happening to us. And he's doing this intervention. He's saying, look at this. Don't follow this the full way. Right? Let's have an intervention. The other—the second thing is that he's a new and different object of craving. You see, there are certain things—remember that passage in verse 11? The people craved something, and it drove them away from God. And you see, you are designed, and I am designed, to crave certain things. We are designed to crave God. And when our cravings are set on God, we get everything he's created back. And it has the capacity to fulfill us. But you see, when we crave the the created thing rather than the creator, we end up getting something that's not—it can't fulfill us. 
We're focusing on an idol, and it will hollow us out, and it will usually destroy the idol. And so we ruin the creation, and we ruin ourselves. It's only when we have a better object of our cravings that we actually get filled in by our desires rather than hollowed out by them, and we're easier to please rather than harder to please. It's the only way to beat the, 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 the trap of tolerance. If you set your cravings on Jesus, there will, you will need a lower dose, and you will find a greater dose of fulfillment. Less and less will be needed to make you happy, and you will find increasingly more and more in him. But if you set it as the object of your craving on anything else, it will hollow you out. You will find less and less in it and less capacity in yourself to enjoy it. He's a true and better object of craving. He is the plague on the power of sin and death. God sent ten plagues on Pharaoh to set his people free. But Jesus in the cross was the true and final and greater plague on death. And in doing so on the power of sin. I mean, think about this. Why do you have to sin? Why do you really believe deep down you have to sin? It's because you cannot afford to wait because your life is passing you by and you're going to die. Death creates urgency to happiness. And that creates the false sense that you've got to go out and grab happiness because you cannot wait for blessing. And you see, the minute Jesus rises from the dead and says, yeah, I killed him. I killed him. And if you believe, Jesus said, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will, will never die, right? If you believe that, the urgency to sin is dead. You can wait forever. And you know you won't have to wait forever. And so the, the ability to face suffering, to delay gratification, to build into willpower, to— Whatever. It's completely changed because the urgency to sin is gone because death is dead. And so Jesus becomes the plague on sin, the final one that kills it. And lastly, he's the true and greater companion in freedom. Let me read you this passage. Moses was a great, great liberating leader, but he had a couple bad moments. And this is one of them. Listen to what Moses said to God about the Jews when they said they wanted meat. Okay? Here's what he said. This is Numbers 11, 10 to 15. Moses heard the people of every family wailing, each at the entrance of his tent. The Lord became exceedingly angry, and Moses was troubled. And he asked the Lord—so this is Moses talking, talking to God, okay? He asked the Lord, Why have you brought this trouble on your servant? What have I done to displease you that you've put the burden of all these people on me? Did I conceive all these people? Did I give them birth? Why do you tell me to carry them in my arms as a nurse carries an infant to the land you promised on oath to their forefathers? Where can I get meat for all these people? They keep wailing to me. Give us meat to eat. I cannot carry all these people by myself. The burden is too heavy for me. If this is how you're going to treat me, put me to death right now. If I found favor in your eyes, and do not let my face, let me face my own ruin. So he was saying, I can't, I can't do this. I can't do this. I don't want to carry these people. They're not my people. I didn't give birth to them. Just kill, I'm coming to ruin. Just kill me. If this is the way you're going to treat me, just kill me. You see, you see what he's saying? Moses was called to be their companion to full freedom. It broken slavery, but he was to be their companion to a whole new life of freedom that he was to lead them into. And Moses ultimately said to God, I would rather die 
then have to lead these sin-infected people to freedom. I'd rather die. Just kill me. I shouldn't have to carry them. But there is a truer and greater Moses that died in order to be the person who leads a sin-infected people to full freedom. Moses, one of the greatest people that ever led anyone, would rather die than lead people into freedom. And Jesus died in order to lead you and me to freedom. And so there is no set of things to do. This is just news. You believe it or you don't. You believe it or you don't. Either you believe Jesus is a true and greater Moses that has died to set you free from the slavery of sin and death, or you don't. But all that's left is your response to that news. And whether or not you're willing to be part of a group of people who will seek to be led by that leader into a life of full freedom, to apply the freedom purchased on the cross to our whole lives. We call that the church. The group of people seeking to follow the liberator into true liberty. What are you going to do with that? That's all there is. That's, that's the challenge of the cross and the empty tomb. It's not for you to do anything. It's whether or not you will believe and accept what Christ has done and then walk with him in it. Let's pray. Father, um, we pray that for all the other things we're going to do today, we pray that um, we would recognize how great a thing it is that you embedded the cross and the empty tomb in the Passover. And that you made a new lasting celebration of a new covenant so that we would remember that you are the liberator from sin. We pray that you would help us to believe and help us commit ourselves to follow the one that is greater than Moses. We pray that you'd help us to accept the freedom for which you set us free. In Jesus' name, amen.